With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. This is Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News today's Talk, TNT. Welcome back to the final hour of Weekends with me, Jason Olborn, here on TNT Radio. Now, the one thing that we do here at TNT Radio, and I will argue do better than anyone else, is search for understanding and ask answers or ask questions and get answers for the reasons that we're trying to understand not only life here on Earth, but life after we pass and that is one of the biggest questions of all how is it that we can talk about scientifically that the universe is almost 14 billion years old that life here on earth or earth existed perhaps 4 billion years ago and if we're lucky we get to reach our life expectancy of around about 80 years give or take i mean that is not a long time to have our life here on earth to gather all of the understanding and to wonder what it is that put us here to be here on earth and be the only intelligent source to have a soul but also to understand a lot more of what is going on and in many ways to reach the idea of self-reflection to ask questions and to look at ourselves to look at our lives and to look at our environment to look at our planet and to go far beyond and look at the galaxies, the, uh, goodness me, and how it expands beyond all that and ask the questions, are we alone, et cetera, et cetera. But really it comes down to what happens next. And that's the story of this next hour, this interview. I'm going to introduce you to a wonderful man in a moment, the author of not one, but two books. I'm going to put one up on the screen now to show you. We're going to be talking about a book called Dying to Live, Life After Death. My guest, Father John Flader, has a Bachelor of Arts in Chemistry from Harvard and a Doctorate in Canon Law from the University of Navarre, Spain. Since 1968, he has been in Australia working with students at the University of New South Wales, the University of Tasmania, RMIT University and various schools in Sydney. Father John was born in Wisconsin, USA, studied chemistry, as I said, in Harvard, graduating in 1962, coming to Australia where he became the first chaplain of Warren College and uh, then got involved with various universities, a prolific author and thinker, and he joins me to discuss this biggest topic of all, what happens when you die. Father John, welcome to Weekends. Thank you very much, Jason. Good to be with you. Uh, look, it's a, a, a thrill uh, to, to have you on the show uh, to talk about probably the most important question for all of us, and certainly when people approach end of life one way or another, they must start thinking about what could possibly come next? And it's something in my lifetime that I have challenged on both sides, uh, whether try to understand uh, from an atheist perspective, if we're just simply an organic computer, that at the end of the expiry date of our lives, we just switch off and that's the end of us. Or perhaps if we're spiritual beings with a soul, that maybe our consciousness or awareness leaves our skin suit, for want of a better term, and is able to transcend into other ways that we can't fully understand in this realm. And it seems that we have competing ideas, but it's the exploration and the understanding of both. I mean, there's obviously going to be an answer one way or another, but it's a lot more than that. John, I wanted to ask you, therefore, what motivated you to take this plunge to 
put pen to paper and do something that is quite profound. And it is a wonderful, wonderful book that many, well, in fact, everyone should read it. It's not hard to read. It's about 150 pages. It's followed with a with a sequel, of course, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But what prompted you to uh, to start in the first place to say, I'm the one to write this book? <laughs> That's a question that I answer in my introduction, which begins this book was not my idea. It would never have come about except for a friend who was attending a retreat that I was giving. He said, I'm 79. Wouldn't it be good if there were a book on life after death for people who don't believe in it? And I immediately took the idea for two reasons. One, it's an important topic. And I wasn't aware of any book written on life after death to show that there is life after death. In other words, to show the non-believer, this is real. And secondly, I had already written a lot of material because I write a column every week since 2005 in the Catholic Weekly of Sydney on issues of faith. And I had written quite a few on issues of life after death. So I had already written quite a bit. Obviously, I had to write a lot more for this book. But thinking there's no book like this, I can write it because I've already written quite a bit. I took to it with great energy and finished that book within that year. The retreat, when this fellow mentioned the idea, was at the end of January of 2021. And the, finish, the book was finished well before the end of that year. It was published by Connor Court in Brisbane early in 2022. So it wasn't my idea, but I was so happy to have been given the idea. And the more I wrote, the more I became enthused with the topic because, and one other thing about this, by the way, Jason, and that is this, you are sitting here and your viewers are looking at a Catholic priest. And that is um, undeniable. In the book itself, there is no suggestion that the author is a Catholic priest. He graduated from Harvard. He's got a doctorate in canon law, but there's no suggestion that I'm a priest. And that was on purpose. All my other books have an imprimatur from a bishop, and they're written by a priest. This one and its sequel, no. The reason being, we did not want to scare away any potential reader who might have been an atheist, might have been from some other religion. Oh, I'm not going to read that stuff by a Catholic priest. This is just someone who is writing this book, obviously knows something about it. So hopefully that has been a benefit to some readers who have picked up the book and not knowing who the author was, have read it uh, with some enjoyment and hopefully learned something from it. <laughs> well, well, absolutely. And uh, and I certainly have uh, learned a lot in uh, in reading it, but it's the way that you've set the book out. It is incredibly approachable uh, and relatable to so many people. I mean, uh, in, in many ways, uh, John, I, I'm glad that you didn't put Father John on there because it, at the very beginning, you talk about placing a bet, and I don't know if that's um, something that uh, that you would associate in such a way. And it was it's interesting because what you're talking about, of course, is placing a bet on whether life after death is real, if it's possible. And I guess the question, therefore. Is it important that we that, that we consider life after death? I mean, there are people that would perhaps say, well, uh, I've made my conclusions, I, I'm saying no, and I'm going to choose to live the life the way that I want, regardless of perhaps consequence or morality. I'm just going to live this perhaps party lifestyle. 
but you deal with it in, in, in a very, very interesting way, almost um, explaining it as you do. Perhaps we could start by asking you, can you explain Pascal's wager? <laughs> yes, now that, that I had already written on that topic for the Catholic Weekly, so I was very conversant with it. And Pascal, Blaise Pascal, 17th century everything, philosopher, mathematician, writer, posed in one of his books, Pensee, Thoughts, this question of betting. Now, in his case, whether there is God or not, but that's intimately related to whether there's life after death or not. And it goes in simple terms, something like this. You can place a bet that there isn't, let's say life after death, we won't speak about God here, but they're totally related. You can bet that there isn't a God or that there is life left after death or no. And if you bet that there that there isn't, and there isn't, in other words, you win the bet, there isn't life after death, in a sense, you haven't lost anything because there's nothing to gain. You die, it's all over. You've lived your decent life according to your standards, and you finish your life and it's all over, you haven't lost anything. If you bet that there isn't life after death, and there is, in other words, there's a heaven, but there's also a hell, and you haven't lived in accordance with your convictions to get to heaven, then you could find yourself in hell, and you have lost everything. We're talking about eternity. You mentioned 80 plus or minus years, which are life expectancy. Eternity is forever. And it's with God, and it is all immense joy, indescribable joy. You're going to miss out on that for all eternity and spend your life distanced from God and with some degree of suffering. So it's it's very important that you not bet no. Now, you can bet yes, and then it's you might win or lose. If you bet yes and you live a good life trying to follow your conscience and the moral law and so far as you know it, and there is life after death, you gain eternity. If you lose the bet because there isn't life after death, you still have lived a good life. You've been more happy. People can trust you. You're honest. You're charitable. You look after other people. Then you you have not lost anything. You've lived a good life here. So on balance, it is much safer to bet that there is life after death than that there isn't. Now, one of the points I make in that chapter is, in reality, people do place a bet. They do. They're either saying, ha, I don't believe in that stuff. Okay, you're you're betting there isn't. Other people say, I know there is, or I think there is, or I'm not too sure. I'm going to read this book, and maybe now I'm convinced that there is. Then you, you, you have placed the bet of thinking there probably is life after death. People do make that wager, that bet. And there's that beautiful story in that chapter of the 24-year-old New Zealander who describes himself as an atheist and a gambler. And when he's faced with life after death, because he's dying, he's in Mauritius, he's diving at night for seafood, he gets into the water with his wetsuit with short sleeves and immediately feels this tremendous stinging on his arm. He said, what is that? Because he had been diving before at night, hadn't felt that. He gets out his torch 
and discovers that it is the box jellyfish known in northern Australian waters at least as the stinger or box jellyfish. It has two meter long tentacles with barbs on. The toxins enter through those barbs and the scratches in your skin and you will be dead within 15 to 20 minutes. And then he had always forgotten this question. He wasn't interested in it. He was living a very, very sinful lifestyle. I don't say that in the book, but you see that on one of his YouTube uh, interviews. There's quite a few of them, actually. And then as he's faced with imminent death, he says, he articulates Pascal's wager to a T. He says, as an atheist, I don't believe in life after death. But as a gambler, I'm gambling with my life here. What if I'm wrong? So in the end, he comes to, to make the judgment there is a God, and God gives him some signs of that. Then he has a near-death experience in which he's unconscious for about 15 minutes, during which he experiences hell. And he said, that's where I would have gone had I not been sorry for my sins. And then he experiences heaven. And you just can't uh, describe the joy of heaven. So heaven is a reality, hell's a reality. And, and this man articulated Pascal's wager when he had probably never heard of Pascal. <laughs> it, it is a remarkable story indeed. And, and this is what's one of the beautiful things about the book is that you take the time to explain uh, other people's perspectives as they add up and uh, and create this um, uh, this process of understanding of the possibility. And it's almost... Uh, analytical we're going to talk a little bit later in the show about um the science behind it and the deductions where you um where you deduce uh mathematically the odds of, of the universe um being <laughs> created by random chance so we're going to explore that after the break i think that's a really important part we're also going to explore the soul and and you you explain that plants and animals also have a soul but they don't have the spiritual connection that the human being has and it's very important for us to understand the differences here and it would explain how uh, humanity or, or life as we know it means that we can obviously eat animals and we can eat plants etc <laughs> and that way even though we have a soul and i think it's important that um that we explore more of that um as we go through this process um uh the the, the idea of course that um that even if you were to learn, for example, that uh, someone passes and that person realises that there is life after death, I guess going to the break, John, would that prove, therefore, if there was life after death, would that prove once and for all to that human being that God exists? Oh, yes, because there's a chapter, chapter five. Well, you've got that because you mentioned some things from it. Um, seven arguments for the existence of God, six of which are based on scientific findings from the 20th century on the cosmos, on the universe. They're all very, very cogent arguments. And and three of them have convinced convinced atheists that there's a God and life after death. So yes, um, looking at the universe, we can know there's life after death, there's a God, there's a God. And then with that comes life after death. Look, it's it's just such a wonderful book. I'm going to put it up on the screen again. We might run some overlay there, but Dying to Live Life After Death or Reflections on Life After Death, an incredible story. We're going to take that break in a moment, and when we come back, we're going to explore more of it. But uh, if you love a good documentary, then you'll love our special screenings, Uninterrupted Cinema is the name of the show, features some of the latest or notable documentaries from the world's best filmmakers. You can check out on TNT's website for more information. The good news is it's coming up right after this hour. You will get 
get one of those cinema documentaries because weekends are better when you spend it with us here on today's News Talk TNT. TNT's Kate Shimarani. They want you dead. It's a depopulation agenda. I hate to break it to you. The government are not your mummy and daddy. You are. Walk in authority. Take control of your own health. It's not the healthcare service, it's the homicide service. (laughs) That's what they're doing. From the minute you're born, they're injecting you. Actually, they're injecting you while you're in vitro now. It's about making you sick, keeping you sick, treating you, killing you, disposing you, and charging you for the luxury, and we don't want that. We want you to live a long and healthy life so that you too can look like Klaus Anal Schwab of the World Economic Forum, that bloke in the skin suit. We can live forever. We should be living till we're 120. Kate Shamarani on today's News Talk TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. News Talk Radio listeners are some of the most active and involved listeners of any format. TNT Radio listeners rely on TNT Radio often as their primary source of information. They trust TNT Radio and are highly engaged with the content. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Unbiased information. Honest and forthright. News without the misinformation. It doesn't matter what side you're from. What matters is what you say, the truthfulness behind it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. My guest this hour, Father John Flatter, talking about his incredible book, Dying to Live, Reflections on Life After Death. Now, what I wanted to head into in this segment, John, was the soul. And you make reference to plants, animals, and human beings have a soul, but there is a notable difference. Can you explain? Yes. Well, the very word soul, normally we associate with humans. But if you go back to Aristotle, and then St. Thomas Aquinas uh, develops that the soul is the life, the principle of a living thing, the life principle of any living thing, from a blade of grass, a mosquito, to a, a wombat, to a kangaroo, to a chimpanzee or a gorilla. And everything that's alive has a life principle, something that coordinates all of the functions of that living thing so that it can reproduce and it can nourish itself if it needs to nourish itself or obtains light in the case of plants and so on. So every living thing has a soul. Human beings have a soul too. We're alive, we have a life principle, but our soul is spiritual, what we sometimes call a an, intellect, an intellective soul. And so we can think. Now, a lot of people will think, and many universities are going to embed this idea in students of things like medicine, sociology, psychology, and so on. We are just a higher animal. The difference between the highest ape, chimpanzee, or whatever, and the human being is just a matter of of development in time with evolution, and some development in the ability to think. And we say categorically, no. We have a soul which is altogether different from an animal. And the one word that I think your listeners would be interested to fall back on, which I do, is a word that starts with P, and it is progress. 
we know that we are radically different from animals in that we make progress, we human beings. If you watch gorillas over centuries, you're going to see them living exactly the same way as they always did. If you look at human beings from our first parents, and by the way, Adam and Eve are two first progenitors of the human race, and the geneticists now are telling us that they're, all human beings are derived from a first parent. They say all men alive are derived from one man because they all have the Y chromosome. All women alive today are derived from one first woman. Let us call her mitochondrial Eve because they all have the mitochondria DNA, which is passed on from through the daughters, through the, the feminine line. Anyway, now getting back to, um, to animals and human beings. If we then look at human beings from the beginning, human beings began maybe in a simple form to, for example, make a fire or make a wheel or make a bow and arrow or a club or a boomerang. And then that was leading to carts. Then it was leading to internal combustion engines. Then it was leading to airplanes and computers and flights to the moon, manned flights, and and the prodigious advance in medicine in every area we are constantly making progress no animal does that now one of the arguments that people can come back to which seems to indicate some commonality between humans and animals the higher apes is what we call the affective life so we go to the zoo and i've been to a good number of zoos and you can watch the mother let's say the gorilla cuddling her infant you can watch her young who are a little bit older playing maybe wrestling maybe climbing up the trees or swinging on the swings whatever they're doing and you can see a certain affection a certain love a certain relationship between that animal and, and the others we have dogs dogs are quite affectionate cats aren't they're pretty cold fish aren't affectionate at all so there is in common with the higher animals what we call the affective life but not the intellective life our soul is the intellective soul the spiritual soul which can think which can make progress and of course write books write philosophy write music write poetry and and build buildings and everything else we've been doing so we our soul is radically different we have a soul and, a, and then we're going to come to the conclusion in this book about life after death the spiritual soul cannot be destroyed when you bury a cat then the whole being um decomposes there wasn't a spiritual soul to start with. There was a life principle, an organizing principle within that, that cat, but everything decomposes into its constituent elements. A human being dies, we can bury the human being. The body will decompose just like that of the animal. The soul being spiritual cannot be destroyed. We can destroy anything material, but we cannot destroy something spiritual. We can't blow it up with a bomb. We can't cut it in two. We can't beat it with a hammer. It's spiritual. It lives on. And we only know by revelation from God through the Bible and so on that there is life after death and there's a heaven and a hell and purgatory, actually. But um, by, by philosophy, we couldn't know that. We can know that life there is life after death. 
So the spiritual soul then leads us to what happens when we die. And the answer is that soul remains, as you mentioned before, conscious, aware of itself. When the body has decomposed, the soul is aware of what's happening. And then it goes through a judgment and it, it can meet God or, or not, but uh, it lives on. This is the, the big difference between the human being and, and any other living being, of course, is that uh, our ability to um, not live in the moment. We often are criticised as human beings to become mindful, to stop thinking or to be present right now, which is where any animal would have to live is in the right now, the present. I need to <laughs> eat, I need to find water, and I'm doing that. Whereas a human being is able to uh, go through this process of, of learning and, and practising self-reflection. Of course, it's one thing to think about our future, to think about what we're going to prepare for our evening yeah. meal, to think about where we're going to visit our friends next week or plan a trip somewhere, but it's something else to be able to look back on our lives, to look back on ourselves, perhaps in a meditative state, and to even envisage that we're looking down on ourselves sitting in a room and, and looking and thinking, wow, we get a fresh perspective. Is that perhaps an example or, 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 or um, evidence that um, that we have this spiritual soul, that, that somehow that we are more than just, just what we are contained in, that there is a separation, that's something that lives on? I know that you talk about in great detail about the various different proofs, but it's something that I find that uh, this is the one thing that's obvious, that all people can go, yeah, that's right, my cat or my dog only lives in the now. Yes. And I don't know if you got to the chapter on near-death experiences. Yes. That was a, you have. Yeah, that was a crucial chapter in the development of this book. And a near-death experience is that when a person has had generally a cardiac arrest and generally in some sort of medical facility, so somebody can pump on their chest and give them artificial resuscitation so that they come back to life. Because if they didn't have that cardiac arrest, generally but there's one case in the book where the man had it out in the countryside he was going to visit a property that he was going to sell and he came back somebody must have found him and they got into a hospital quickly enough but in that near-death experience the soul leaves the body and it goes through various stages but it's looking down on the attempts at resuscitation sometimes it's floating around the hospital where, where this person is sometimes it goes beyond that goes through the tunnel to the light, which is a common experience we've read about, to the light. And then in there, often there's a judgment, which they call the life review. There are scientists, psychiatrists investigating near-death experiences. There's quite a number of books. I've read two of them. And and they call this the, the, the life review. We would call it the judgment before God. You see your whole life in an instant it's a quite a frightening experience and then you will know i'm going to hell and there's a story of a priest there a catholic priest who had a, a head-on collision and had a, a near-death experience that he only recalled later in which he found himself before the judgment seat of god and he knew from what he saw of his own life that he was going to hell this catholic priest who was an active priest in his parish in kansas in the United States, and he knew he was going to hell, and he accepted that. He said, that's what I deserve. Then he didn't go there because Mary, the mother of Jesus, intervened. And it's quite an extraordinary story, but this man tells it, and uh, he was going to hell, and he felt that. So the judgment, and then after the judgment, you will know, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to hell, I'm going to purgatory, which is another possibility too. 
this is what uh, becomes so so amazing in, in this process is that um it's the power of deduction that people are arriving at these um obviously experience but are arriving at these conclusions now if we can just sort of stretch a little bit further um where you start exploring the origins of life and the impossible odds and i'm talking specifically about sir frederick hoyle and chandra wick ramasinger can you tell me a bit more about uh, the scientific approaches here about this impossible odds scenario <laughs> it's good that you remember those two names and especially chandra Rikrama Singh would be a sri lankan name he was a mathematician in the university of cardiff in wales and frederick hoyle was a prominent atheist and um astronomer anyway in the in the early 1980s those two set out to calculate the probability that life just appeared by chance in the prehistoric soup as they called the atmosphere around the earth and this just goes back one step at the time of the big bang which up until the james webb telescope which has only been in action for a few months the the accepted age of the universe from the big bang is about 13.8 as you said 14 billion years ago and there was no life there was no life and you said life appeared as you say about 4 billion 3.5 billion years ago life appeared as a single cell organism somehow and then when you look at what life is the most simple single cell organism is extraordinarily complex and there's a description of that by um, a writer who was so he's a scientist at the university of new south wales i was chaplain at warren college in that university for a good number of years and so there was no life and then there was life now how does this extraordinary complex system of proteins amino acids put itself together with all of those atoms and mo molecules put itself together in the prehistoric soup by chance or maybe it was put together by some other means so Hoyle and Wickramasinghe set out to calculate the probability now they would have to look at the probability of this molecule of let's say water or carbon or whatever it was joining to those other molecules in this exceedingly complex macromolecule what not macromolecule it's it's a whole series of amino acids and they came up with a probability which when i teach this and i speak about it always say at the in, in the middle of that sentence that before i give you the probability that they came up with i go back to another probability and that is and i heard this on ABC radio and I was going to Newcastle every two weeks for some years and at, at 9 40 in, in the evening on ABC radio they were interviewing the head of the the Kuna Bear brand or the British astronomer the uh, I think it's the British uh, Australian uh, Astro Observatory or whatever and he was he was on the night sky and he was a brilliant speaker English by background and he once gave a statistic which I thought that's relevant and the statistic was this the total number of subatomic particles in the universe with its hundreds of billions of galaxies when you look out at a starry night and you see a star that's a galaxy 
<laughs> the galaxy millions of light years away, perhaps different different distances. And he said the total number of subatomic particles, and we're not talking atoms, we are talking uh, well, uh, neutrons and protons and electrons and quarks and Higgs bosons and everything you can name, which is making up the atom, the subtotal, so the total of all of those in the universe is 10 to the 80th approximately. And I looked that up on the net and that's correct. The scientists will say 10 to the 80th. What is that? 10 times 10 times 10 times 10. It's getting bigger by a factor of 10 every time you say 10 times 80. By then you've got an extraordinary number. And he said, Fred, Fred Watson, that therefore we scientists regard any phenomenon that might occur in the universe which has a probability of anything less than one in 10 to the 80th as for all intents and purposes impossible. Mm. So now we go back to Fred Hoyle and Chandra Rikamasinghe, and they came up with a probability of one in 10 to the 40,000th, or not one in 10 to the 80th or 100th or, or, or 800 or 8,000, no, one in 10 to the 40,000. So infinitesimal, impossible. So this atheist, Frederick Hoyle, concluded from that especially that life could not possibly have put itself together by chance. But then if it didn't come by chance, where did it come from? Because it's here. We are here. We're talking. We're alive. We're a very sophisticated form of life. And they concluded there had to be a creator. And then they said, and this creator is a super intellect in outer space. So it came to Earth from some super intellect somewhere in outer space who sent it to Earth on primitive spores. That's their terminology. Now, I just conclude with Frederick Hoyle's very famous statement. Maybe some of your listeners and viewers have heard this. But he said the probability that the first living thing put itself together by chance in the prehistoric soup is about as great as a tornado blowing through a junkyard producing a 747. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a terrific conclusion. And, and, that's and, and the a point. 747 is nowhere near sophisticated yes. as a human body. It's just nowhere near. <laughs> You're not going to get a 747 out of a tornado. If you had 10 tornadoes, you're still not going to get one. We, are, we realize that. You can have a, a million, a billion tornadoes. They don't produce 747. Chance doesn't produce life. Creator. And I would say to Fred, he, he died some years ago, Fred, congratulations, you've just discovered God. So super intellect in outer space. I'm happy to accept that in the human <laughs> definition. But that's what we call God. He's not in outer space. He's, he's, beyond, he's on this, beyond this realm. He's transcendental. <laughs> this is what I find that uh, you can only sort of grow into this understanding because you're looking for, again, more detail and more understanding. And then, of course, you arrive at these paradoxes. So mathematically, we've proven that anything that is less than uh, so, or, or less likely than 10, 1 in 10 to the power of 80 is considered scientifically as an impossibility, and you're talking about ten to the forty thousandth. It's it, it's it's impossible. So the 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 paradox, therefore, exists is that um, um, what who needs to take the leap of faith, the believers or the atheists at this point? 
Okay, now I say something in the book which I've always said, which I don't think anybody else has managed to say. However, it is this. An atheist has more faith than I do. I have enough faith to believe that this universe, I'll come back to the origin of the universe if you like, because that's another conundrum of extraordinary proportions with different answers from different scientists, but the only one reasonable answer to it. But um, and if I have enough belief, I have enough faith to believe in God who created this universe out of nothing. God is the almighty, the all-knowing being who has created this universe with all of its intricate design. Look at the, 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 the various aspects of the human body, the various systems, respiratory, reproductive, digestive, and so on. It's all designed. God could do that. An atheist believes that it all happened by chance. That takes an, art, an act of faith that's well beyond mine. I can't possibly believe that. There's no evidence for it. It's just a leap of faith. There is no God. The universe is here. It just came to be. Life just came to be. Well, congratulations on your faith, but I just don't have that much. This is it. Now, we're going to take a break because uh, this is we're at that time. But when we come back, I do want to go back a bit more about the exploration of the origins of the universe, the idea that you can create something out of nothing, which, again, is it defies it defies physics. And that's the point of this exploration. I really hope that you're enjoying this discussion, this conversation with Father John. I'll hold up his book one more time. It's in front of me. I'm, I'm going through it all the time, looking for more notes to ask more questions for you. Dying to Live, Reflections on Life After Death, John Flata. You can pick that up through Connor Court Publishing or other booksellers. We'll take a break and be back with more here on Weekends with Jason Olborn on TNT. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. There's an old Southern proverb here in the United States that the ones doing the accusing are usually the ones doing the doing. The bard put it a little more eloquently, methinks thou doth protest too much. But pretty much any time you see people smearing Donald Trump, for example, you can pretty much bet your bottom dollar that they're the ones that are guilty from everything of which they accuse him. Starting war, being a dictator on day one, all of the lies heaped upon Donald Trump, all the fear-mongering, all the panic they're trying to engender. We're, we have to save democracy. How exactly? By destroying democracy, by being totalitarian, by breaching civil rights? No. I'm sticking with Granny on the front porch. Those doing the accusing are usually those doing the doing. For MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea. For today's news talk, TNT. Prescription drug pricing points to corporate mountain. Freedom of the press is about your right to know. It's about your right to be informed. Today, no. there are real threats to press freedom. And your right to know about the world around us. We must protect our right to know, no matter what kind of news is important to you. Before it's too late, understand the threats. Protectpressfreedom.org. Weekends are better when you spend it with us. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. 
Welcome back. We are with Father John Flatter with his wonderful book, and we're going to explore now not only life after death, but the origins of the universe. John, how is it possible that uh, in physics, you know, energy transfers into another form of energy, but the origins of the universe, according to science, are telling us to believe that something can come from nothing? <laughs> that is the ultimate mystery, isn't it? And if um the the latest scientific explanation of the universe i say latest i don't know when this came about but probably in the last 50 years before that science well the, the big bang goes back to the 30s in fact it goes back to a catholic priest george lemaitre who's a belgian and at first einstein disagreed with him but then he came to believe in the big bang the origin of the universe and but it was possible to believe in a, in a whole series of big bangs so that the universe would explode into existence it would gradually expand but then gravity would pull it back so it would reach its apex in which it was the maximum uh, let's say distance across but then gravity would gradually pull back it would slow down in its expansion and then it would collapse again into another big bang and then it would be a big bang after that and this could go back for well there always has to be a beginning that's another philosophical um uh, absolute certainty but maybe this big bang 13.8 billion years ago wasn't the first okay but then with the the scientific um, understanding and ex, um, exploration of the universe throughout the 20th century they discovered to their immense surprise that the universe was not expanding at a decreasing rate which you would expect from gravity for example if you throw a ball into the air you throw it at a certain speed and it's going to decrease its speed until it reaches the top and then it's going to slowly come down it's going to reach its maximum velocity when it hits the ground depending on how how far it is to the ground but that's what you expect in the universe then they discovered it's expanding at an increasing rate now they they know this from various um experiments that they do and that was the mystery for them because that presupposes what they're now calling dark energy there's dark matter a black hole just absorbs everything around it and not even light gets out of its black hole but now we have dark energy which is some sort of energy out there which is pushing things stronger than the force of gravity which is pulling things together anyway so with that they then conclude before this big bang there was nothing now i, I mentioned before something that i didn't finish and that was the james webb telescope with this they are peering back into time to unbelievable distances to a point where if we say 13.8 billion years ago they have discovered um galaxies that date to a few hundred billion years after the big bang now that's right back at the beginning and then they say well now somebody said this i haven't read this but someone said that maybe with the james webb telescope they're going to push back the age of the universe to something like 20 billion years ago well anyway at, at some point the universe began and they are convinced the scientists that before that there was nothing now we've got a problem out of nothing nothing comes everybody knows that so but out of nothing something has come lots of it 
billions, hundreds of billions of galaxies. And here's another fact that I that comes from the James Webb Telescope. When I was researching all this, and I have a scientific background, that's why I, I love science. But when I was researching this, I came up with a figure of two trillion galaxies. And then I, I, I read further and they said, well, look, that's a bit too many. Let's call it hundreds of billions. And then with the Dave's James Webb Telescope, apparently they get back to two trillion or whatever number. It's just extraordinary. And so all of this something came from nothing. Now, how does something come from nothing? And then you have, let's just go to two universities, Oxford and Cambridge. And let's start with Cambridge. And we have um, Stephen Hawking, mm. author of of um what's his first book um a brief well, history of the universe history of time brief history yes. of time brief, brief history of time i didn't read it but at the end of that book he acknowledges the possibility of god because he says if we understood this we would understand the mind of god so he doesn't deal with the origin of the universe he just acknowledges there could be a god he says, my, my area of science is on the frontier between science and religion. I try to stay on the scientific side of the border, which is all a scientist can do. A philosopher, a theologian can go beyond that. They can speculate about the other side of, of matter and, and science. So, so he then, in that book, A Brief History of Time, said, if we knew that, we could know the mind of God. So there was some belief in the possibility, at least, of God. Then he wrote another book, which was The Grand Design. Now, the very title suggests designer, but what he argues in that book is, we don't need God to explain the origin of the universe from nothing. We don't need God. And he said, we don't need God to light the blue touch paper to set the universe in motion. Given the law of gravity, the universe will put itself together. Living, given the law of gravity. Well, if there's nothing, Fred, not, not Stephen, if there's nothing, there's no law of gravity. There's nothing. Out of nothing, nothing can come. It can't. So then that's the University of Cambridge. That was Stephen Hawking. He was on his own. He had a co-writer of that book. And there will probably be a good number of scientists who would prefer to believe that there's no God because it, you say, well, I don't have to face God when I die. There's no life after death. They prefer that. They're betting that there isn't. Fine. Freedom. But then in Oxford, you have John Lennox, professor of mathematics. He's an older man now, undoubtedly retired. But I've read several of his books. He happens to be an Anglican. He's a believer, but he is also a scientist. He's a professor of mathematics. And he has, the first book I read given to me by a friend was God's Undertaker Has Science Buried God? So that's one of the ideas. Science has buried God. We don't need God to explain everything because now we have science. And then he's written a number of other books. But one, once Stephen Hawking came out with the grand design, arguing that we don't need God to start the universe, um in in summary i just saw this on on john lennox's website <laughs> he says to summarize hawking's idea and he explains it in greater detail how there has to be a god but he says nonsense even when spoken by eminent scientists remains nonsense so 
I mean, out of nothing, nothing comes. You can have all the explanations you want, but you need some being to put that all in motion, to create out of nothing uh, something. And, and, and the only explanation is God. I can believe in that. I believe in God. I love God. <laughs> I hope to be with him in heaven. But uh, if you don't have God, well, then there's nothing. And then you don't have a, a cogent explanation for the universe. You just don't. Well, this is the great confusion and the great paradox, of course, because putting all your eggs in one basket, the incomplete science, and expecting to get an answer for that defies the laws of physics doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Looking back on the world as you've lived a wonderful life, Father John, do you think that God is disappointed in his human creation, therefore, or is he proud of it? Is it just a work in progress, perhaps? <laughs> when we ask what God is thinking, we'll have to ask him when we get there. I'll say that. We'll find out when we get there. We'll have to ask him. But God God lives in, in absolute happiness, bliss. So he can look on us and he sees all of us. He knows all of us. He knows all of our good deeds and he knows our sins too. And um, he's probably disappointed in our sins, but he, he loves us. And remember in, in Genesis at the beginning of the Bible, and he and after every day of creation, there's six days of creation, at the end of each day it says, and he saw what he created and it was good. So it was good. Everything that has existence is good in itself. It's good. So God is happy with his creation. Human beings he created with freedom. And here he ran the risk of misuse of freedom. With animals, he didn't. They follow their instincts. They don't, they don't commit offenses against God. They just do what they were made to do. And let us say that in the animal kingdom, some animals are going to eat other animals. And those animals, in turn, might eat other animals. And those basic ones are probably going to eat grass <laughs> or insects. But um, if they kill somebody, that's kill something, that's their nature. But human beings can do the wrong thing because we're afraid. He leaves us afraid. And Adam and Eve did the wrong thing, and that's why Christ became man. But um, we are free. Is God disappointed with our sins? Undoubtedly. But then again, he knows he made us free, and he forgives us. And that's one of the great truths of, uh, of, of theology or of knowing God is that he's ever merciful. So he's going to forgive us our sins. And frankly, let me say something for all of you listeners uh, whether they are atheists or, or Christians, believers, or, or Hindus or Buddhists or Jews or Muslims, is that all we need to do to escape hell is be sorry for our sins. We can commit all the sins in the book, and when we die, if we're sorry for our sins, we're not going to go to hell. So um, we don't have to, um, to think about hell, but we have to live well so that we can be sorry. You mentioned your dad, and he did a lot of good in his life, and I'm, I'm convinced that people who may not have a religion, but they do a lot of good in their life, that's going to get them to heaven. So <laughs> I have a lot of hope for people like that. I've got a brother like that myself, very good man, but he just is an agnostic. And I told him to read my book. I don't think he has, but um, he said, he's my brother. He hasn't even read my book. I don't think, maybe he has, but uh, he hasn't talked about it. Another couple have, you know, my siblings. 
I find that very interesting that the people closest to us can in many ways doubt uh, the abilities that others can see in us. I wanted to just draw a couple of comparisons. It's not necessarily related directly to the book. Uh, I also want to mention the sequel to the book, the final exam. We'll get to that. We we are obviously running out of time. But uh, in many ways, we look at the idea of um, the self or collectivism. And the idea is that we, we can live, and, and these are also paradoxes, the idea that we want to become or ought to become self-sufficient in our lives, that we don't need to therefore depend on anyone else for the things that we need to do. But the opposite of self-sufficiency, therefore, is dependency. But at the same time, we're encouraged to work collectively for perhaps the greater good of all humanity and the planet, etc. But there's also the idea that you can be every person or every man for himself that seems to compete against that idea. But it seems, though, that you can be self-sufficient and work for the greater good, as opposed to being dependent on the system and also being selfish and every man for himself. So these are, again, these great paradoxes that are out there. And I just thought it was worth mentioning that because all of us uh, are trying to live our best lives. And it seems that the more that we can do for ourselves and not have to depend on anyone else provides that said freedom that all of us are looking for. How does that sort of marry up to uh, to your sort of worldview, your, your big picture perhaps? Well, my big picture is nobody is self-sufficient. We can be relatively self-contained self-made man but we all depend on others for for uh, the police force for putting out fires for health we go to doctors and and people make our clothing and people educated us and people built our house and we're totally dependent on others we are all in this together as as the human family and therefore even though we are a separate individual, we are not dependent on others for our thought process and what we're going to do. To some extent we are, of course, but to some extent we're independent. But we are part of the human family and we have a duty to the human family to work together for the common good for others. And the more we do for others, the more we're storing up treasure in heaven, if you like, to to, to get us there when we die. What a, what a beautiful conclusion to, to to this interview to be able to to say that uh, all of us uh, owe it to ourselves to become as self-sufficient and as in a way that we can contribute but at the same time to appreciate that we are part of the greater human family that we can't be uh, everything to all people the fact is you get unwell you need to get you need to seek uh, health advice etc go see a doctor whatever it is uh, the same way you need policemen firemen etc and that's the wonderful thing John I want to put up the other book uh, now this is the sequel to dying to live it's called the final exam there it is on the screen right now for you uh, we haven't had time to talk about that today but it, it comes hand in hand this book was only released, um, I think it was uh, sometime last year, uh, 2023. Um, how long did it take you to realise that you wanted to do another book and a follow-up, given that we've only got about 60 seconds left? Okay, I didn't want to write another book. I don't have time to write a book, but a friend from Brisbane said, please write another book in the same style of Dying to Live. And I, I discounted the idea. I wasn't going to write a book. I was praying about it one day and I just an idea came that led to this book, which is all of morality based on the natural law. So this isn't a book for Christians or, or believers. It's a book for all human beings because it's based on the natural law. And I'm writing another book now. It's a sequel, which came again in an inspiration. So 
that is on how we should think more about this journey to heaven. What a wonderful, wonderful body of work. It's quite incredible. Father John Flater, thank you for your time today. I hope that everyone watching and listening has enjoyed this show as much as I have in delivering it to you. I'll be back tomorrow afternoon with a whole new set of guests and new ideas you don't want to miss out. And coming up next, we are going to present Cinema, a carefully curated, selected documentary that I'm sure you're going to love. Thanks for being with me today on Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio.